Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. All right, good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a political party that is so nihilistic. They're literally willing to destroy the U.S. economy just to own the libs. Republicans are refusing to vote to increase the debt ceiling, which could have catastrophic results. According to a report from Moody's, a prolonged debt ceiling breach could cost up to six million jobs, wipe out $15 trillion in household wealth, and surge the unemployment rate to 9%. It is so bad that six former Treasury secretaries wrote a letter imploring Congress to extend the limit, saying that allowing an unprecedented default could cause serious economic harm. Confronted with that reality, Republicans say that, of course, the U.S. can't default on its loans. But they refuse to help Democrats in any way. Now, just two years ago, Mitch McConnell made it clear that the consequences of default would be dire. But now, he's saying, well, Republicans actually have no role to play in seeing the country stay afloat. So you are expecting then to raise the debt ceiling once again? Of course, we yeah. will never we will never have America default. Well, we raised the debt ceiling because America can't default. I mean, that would be a disaster. The facts are indisputable. This is a totally democratic government. They have an obligation to raise the debt ceiling and they will do it. Don't play Russian roulette with our economy. Step up and raise the debt ceiling. Well, it's clear it's a straight up dereliction of duty. The thing is, Mitch McConnell doesn't actually care what happens to Americans. He sees an opportunity here for Democrats to be forced to go it alone on increasing the debt limit so that he can run ads against them and get that Senate majority leader gavel back. That is really all that he cares about. We already saw the beginning of it today with Republicans saying that this was a consequence of a liberal spending spree. Well, that's a flat out lie, by the way. Part of the reason that Congress needs to raise the debt ceiling is to pay for the previous bipartisan COVID relief bill passed when Donald Trump was president. Not to mention the fact that Democrats helped Republicans to raise the debt ceiling under Trump. In fact, Republicans' dear leader increased the debt by $7.8 trillion with a T dollars, including by jamming through a $1.5 trillion with a T tax cut for the rich. And right on cue, America's most embarrassing retiree emerged from the Greens of whatever mediocre golf course he's at right now to egg on Republicans to negotiate with the debt ceiling and force Democrats to, quote, concede all the horror they are trying to inflict upon the future of the U.S. I mean, I'm pretty sure Americans are still recovering from the horror that was the Trump presidency. As usual, it's an entirely hypocritical statement. Trump once suggested getting rid of the debt ceiling entirely. Republicans' argument that Democrats just go it alone may actually be impossible. The House budget chair is saying that there is not enough time to either write a standalone bill or to add a debt ceiling increase to reconciliation before October 1st, which is when the government would shut down if Republicans don't pass the combined continuing resolution slash debt ceiling bill that passed the House last night. The Treasury bill, I mean, the Treasury will reach its borrowing limit in mid-October without a debt ceiling increase. This comes as Democrats are confronting divisions within their own party. 
President Biden spent his entire afternoon meeting with Democratic leadership, moderates and progressives to try to come up with an agreement on his major spending bill. Progressives are clear that they will not vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill until their spending bill passes the Senate. While moderates are balking at the price tag and some of the provisions in the bill, including drug price reforms and tax increases on the rich and climate action. We are still waiting to hear what exactly came out of those discussions today. Joining me now is NBC News Capitol Hill, uh, Capitol Hill correspondent Leanne Caldwell, Jason Johnson, professor of politics and journalism at Morgan State University, and Jennifer Rubin, Washington Post opinion columnist and author of the new book, Resistance, How Women Save Democracy, from Donald Trump. Leanne, I want to go to you first. Um, what is the status of just the Democrat side of trying to decide what they can get done by October 1st? Joy, this is, I've been covering the Hill for a long time, and this is one of the most complicated trapeze acts that Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer are trying to navigate. They have President Biden on their side, of course. So by October 1st, they're trying to pass a bipartisan traditional infrastructure bill, a $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill, keep the government open and lift the debt limit, or at least suspend the debt limit. Now, all of these things are colliding into each other and how they get out of it, it's not completely clear. As you mentioned, a lot of lawmakers are at the White House today uh, talking to President Biden, who is finally engaged in these discussions. And the little readout we've received so far, mostly from Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer, and then separately also some of the moderates, there hasn't been a lot of consensus that has been agreed to, including the three, the, what the top line number is going to be of this re- reconciliation bill, if it's going to be $3.5 trillion or if it's going to be less. And the, he's meeting with the progressives right now, and that's going to be a critical meeting because they are taking a very stark stand in their opposition to this bipartisan bill until they get a vote on this human infrastructure bill. And I don't see how Speaker Pelosi is good at her job. But this is probably one of her most difficult tasks yet. Leanne Caldwell, thank you very much. Really appreciate that. It is a trapeze act. But if there's one person we know is good at the old trapeze, it is Speaker Pelosi. So thank you very much. Really appreciate that reporting. All right. let, Let me go to you first on this, Jason, because it is a trapeze act that Democrats have to pull off. And let's just be clear. We are only talking about one party doing this because there is only one governing party left in the country. Republicans have made it clear, not just to their base, uh, to the lunatic fringe that worships Donald Trump, but by the way, also to their own donors, to Wall Street, to the business community, to the Chamber of Commerce. Whoever is wide awake understands that Republicans are completely irresponsible when it comes to the economy. The fact that they would even play games with not raising the debt limit means they are off the table as responsible grown-ups. period. So this is about the Democrats. The Democrats have to try to figure out this $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. We'll put it up on the screen again. It's Medicare expansion, paid family leave, universal pre-K, free community college, extending child tax credits, child care, et cetera, pathway for undocumented immigrants, all of that stuff. While at the same time, as Adam Gentleson points out, you've got some moderates some of whom get get that good, good drug company money who are like, nah, we don't want to do that. They're trying to derail this big bill, which could include everything in theory, including maybe, you know, everything could go in that bill. But they're like, nah, we don't like it. While it's progressives who are basically saying we're willing to play ball with the president. How do you see this all playing out? 
So this is this is we, we can't state enough how important this is. It's nice to hear that President Biden is actually sitting down and having meetings with people. But this all goes back to the fact that one, yes, as you said, there's really only one governing coalition, because if any Republicans in the Senate said they would get along with this, you could get the debt ceiling passed. You could get you get most of these things passed if Republicans weren't just going to be lockstep with Mitch McConnell. The other problem that you have on the Democratic side, though, is that you essentially have three factions. You have your sort of moderate Republicans. You have your progressive Republicans. You have your moderate Democrats. You have your progressive Democrats in the House. And then you have your conservative Democrats like Joe Manchin. Now, he gets along better with his friends who are seemingly (laughs) Republicans when it comes to issues like the $3.5 trillion that we need for human infrastructure. But if he can't come to an agreement or he can't be used as a way to sort of convince the other conservative Democrats behind him who are hiding, none of this stuff gets done. And I also want to point out in the midst of this joy that also we saw the end of police reform happen today. There are a lot of very important legislative things that have to be accomplished in the next two weeks, or this could basically, you can't doom a presidency, but legislatively, if they don't get these things done now, they're not going to get it done next year during a midterm election. You know, and the difference between now, Jennifer, and all the times that I have been observing politics and probably that you have as well, is that we are now no longer talking about two parties negotiating how to govern the country. We're literally having a conversation about a a sort of unicameral government with some sort of a lunatic sort of cult near it that looks like it's in the government and it's dressed up like it's in the government and it gets a salary from the taxpayers like it's part of the government, but it ain't in the government. You now have House leadership whipping against they're whipping against not the three point five trillion. Let's put that aside. That's off the table. That's reconciliation. They're whipping against the regular old bipartisan Senate infrastructure bill. They're whipping against bridges and roads for their own districts. Jennifer. <laughs> well, you are right. This is nihilism on steroids. Um, these people don't give um, a um, fig about the country. Um, they think that this is all about um, owning the libs, embarrassing the libs, and crashing the country, of course. But you said something interesting. You said there's one party that's governing. The problem is that party can't really govern when you have the filibuster. So Correct. if Republicans right. are going to declare themselves totally responsible, not going to even vote on the debt ceiling, not going to do the basic functions, then why give them the uh, filibuster? The filibuster is supposed to promote debate and compromise. They're making the best argument I could make, probably better than I could, that they are totally irresponsible and it's insanity to give them a veto power over a party that is legitimately trying to govern when they don't have a plan for governance and their idea is crash the economy, crash the democracy, um, and just say no to everything. So I think um, if Democrats can finally get uh, Mr. Manchin um, to acknowledge that he is not dealing with the 1950s version of the Republican Party, or even the 1990s version of the Republican (laughs) Party, but he is dealing with people who are on a mission to destroy America, maybe that would finally make an impact on him when they're talking about getting rid of the filibuster. Um, They are simply trying to, as you say, own the libs. And if they take the country down the tube, so well, that's the cost of doing business. Well, I mean, and you know what, I'll I'll make an even finer point of it, Jason. I, I will correct myself. It isn't one party governing. It's one part 
of the government. That means the House of Representatives, right. which is passing bills like a normal yes. branch of government, which is passing reforms that were uh, that are supported by the majority of Americans, whether it's climate police reform. They've already passed all this voting reform. It's just one piece of the government that's functioning. The Senate ain't functioning either, because within that body, you have Democrats that seem more married to allowing Republicans to wreck the car than to pulling the damn car over. I've never seen anything like this. There is a faction in the Democratic Party the Mansion Cinema and whoever's with right. them faction that seems more interested in standing back and forcing the rest of their party to allow Republicans to wreck the economy, to let them ruin the country, to let them end democracy. I don't get it. Joy, no matter how much uh, pushback Trent Lott occasionally gave to George Bush, no matter how much John McCain was occasionally a thorn in the side of Donald Trump, we have never seen the kind of internal obstructionism to a president of the same party as we've seen between Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and what's happening with Joe Biden right now. What we are seeing between the House and the Senate, which are both controlled by Democrats, as we keep pointing out, and the presidency, which is controlled by Democrats, is like the worst high school group project ever, where you have one side that did all the assignment and they're ready to go. And the other side's like, I don't like the font and they're just not going to let anything happen. And that's the problem. Now, whether or not Joe Biden can come in and sort of whip everybody into accomplishing their jobs, it speaks to a larger issue here, which is you have one party that understands power, which is the Republicans. That's they right. recognize that they have power to obstruct and they have the power to do nothing. And the Democrats can't seem to figure out what power is or how to use it. Or how to use it. And they don't seem to want to, Jennifer. They don't seem to want to use power. Right. And it's again, it's not the House. Pelosi's team is ready to is ready to work. They're working. They're passing bill after bill after bill. But the United States Senate is now it's been captured by people like Manchin and Cinema, who I can't figure out their strategy other than let the Republicans wreck the country. And I don't understand why that that is what they seem to prefer. They have convinced themselves that the way they uh, survive in their states is by allowing Republicans to wreck the country. This makes no sense. If Republicans were negotiating for, say, less than $3.5 trillion, or they were uh, negotiating, maybe we modify the uh, prescription drug provision, that would be one thing. That would be showing their constituents back home that they're going to be fiscally responsible, that they're not simply going to rubber stamp those liberal progressive uh, leaders. But that's not what's going on. What they're doing is that they're conspiring um, with Republicans so that they would have nothing, that the things that even they have run on, that they want to get done would not get done. So yeah. maybe this is some super duper sleight of hand to give Manchin the final say on what's in the bill. But I mm. don't see it right now. I see him being a spoiler and a presidency, a democracy, unfortunately, rests in the balance. And when Republicans, if this helps them take back over, Manchin and Cinema need to understand all that uh, Mitch McConnell wants are more far right wing judges, more handmaid's tale judges. And that is all he's going to do. It's all he ever wanted. And that gavel, Jason Johnson, Jennifer Rubin, thank you very much. And y'all check out Resistance, How Women Save Democracy from Donald Trump. That's Jennifer's new book up next on the readout. What kind of person sues his own niece for telling the truth? Oh, well, you already know the answer to that one. But is his desperate lawsuit a tacit admission that he cheated on his taxes? Plus, the latest from the death cult as Ron DeSantis picks an anti-mask, anti-vaxxish doctor to be a surgeon general. Also, the police reform legislation named for George Floyd will not become law. 
the behind-the-scenes sabotage that brought it down. And a few hints on tonight's absolute worst, pizza, COVID, and crocodiles. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. NBC News confirms that Donald Trump has sued The New York Times, as well as his own niece, Mary Trump, over a 2018 report that shattered the illusion of him as a self-made billionaire. With just a touch of hyperbole, Trump accuses them of engaging in an insidious plot to obtain confidential and highly sensitive records, which they exploited for their own benefit. He alleges that by leaking his tax records, Mary Trump, and by extension, The Times, broke a two-decades-old confidentiality agreement. And he's claiming that uh, he's claiming a preposterous sum in damages of no less than one hundred million dollars. But that so-called insidious plot that Trump alleges, eh, well, it's called journalism. And by suing The Times, Trump has essentially confirmed their reporting. Now, keep in mind that the story exposed Trump as a tax cheat who inherited his wealth through fraud, which, of course, he denied and called fake news. But if the reporting wasn't true, he'd have sued for defamation. Right. Which he notably did not do. Responding to a suit in an interview with the Daily Beast, Mary Trump called her uncle a, quote, effing loser, saying he's going to throw anything against the wall he can. It's desperation. Legal experts also say that Trump should be careful what he wishes for. He's staking his claim on a non-disclosure agreement that may not hold up under scrutiny. And that scrutiny is sure to entail multiple depositions under oath, which you might want to avoid. Joining me now, Tristan Snell, former New York assistant attorney general who helped lead the prosecution of Trump University. And David K. Johnson, who has written extensively on Trump and is co-founder of DCReport.org. Uh, David, uh, Mary Trump's lawyer today said the following. This is the latest in a long line of frivolous lawsuits by Donald Trump that target truthful speech and important journalism on issues of public concern. It's doomed to failure like the rest of his baseless efforts to chill freedom of speech and of the press. I, I feel like this is a giant tell by Trump that he's really, really angry that he was exposed for the brokenness that really (laughs) engulfs him. Your thoughts? (laughs) Well, this is another gambit by Donald to stay in front of his dwindling supporters. They haven't dwindled a lot, but they are starting to dwindle. He needs to raise money. Uh, He's become America's beggar in chief. And There is no case here against the Times, and and my law school students are going to examine this case, I assure you, in the spring semester. Uh, (laughs) But he has exposed himself to two big problems. One is, of course, discovery and being questioned or oath. But the second one is the courts have already held, basically, that Mary Trump 
can't be stopped by the non-disclosure agreement. She may suffer some civil penalties if Donald wants to sue her over it, but we could end up with a court decision that says all your NDAs are worthless. Mm, that would be interesting. Tristan, let, let, let me let you listen to Donald Trump, because here's the thing yeah. that's weird. He's saying that he was injured to the tune of $100 million because his tax returns got out. But here's what he previously said about his tax returns. Uh, you're going to release your tax returns? At the appropriate time, I will release them. I will absolutely give my return, but I'm being audited now. I'll release them when the audit's completed. When the audit's complete, I'll do it. But I would love to give the tax returns. I would love to give them, but I'm not going to do it while I'm under audit. It's very simple. Uh, Mr. Snell, I am not a lawyer, nor am I a former assistant attorney general, but can you sue somebody for doing something that you said you were going to do yourself? Well, <laughs> look, it just makes them, it makes them look foolish. Uh, you can you can sue them, but it doesn't mean you're going to win. I think the real issue here is going to be that you can shot a non-disclosure provision out there. But if that provision was obtained by fraud, then it's no good. You can void it. And that, I think, is going to be what a lot of this hinges on is this reopens this huge Pandora's box of what happened 20 years ago with the estate of Fred Trump and what right. was said to whom. And then that opens up all sorts of issues with discovery and depositions, like you were saying. And da I mean, David, the, the story on Trump, and you, we've talked about this a lot on my previous show uh, and when I've had you on before, is that the whole myth of him as being this self-made billionaire wasn't true. It's not even clear he ever was a billionaire, that he ever made it to the billion status. But that it isn't the risk here that the more he talks and the more discovery that happens, the more he sues, the more that story is unraveled and it just turns out he inherited $300 you know, million and lost it. And that's just the story. And then he got a TV show. Well, that's how you and I and, and rational people will see this. But people who have bought into Donald Trump, you know, what a better tactic than to go after the evil New York Times. <laughs> what a horrible anti-American institution because it yeah. deals in verifiable facts. <laughs> and he will use this to raise money, which he desperately needs to do. And I got to tell you, I hope his lawyers got big fees up front. These are not his regular yeah. lawyers. Donald has the regular lawyers anymore because Donald is notorious for not paying his lawyers. Just Never ask mail. Rudy. Yeah, he's yeah, not going to pay. Right. They need to understand that I hope when they do this, I hope they're doing it for publicity and for the fame because they are not yeah. going to get paid. They just need to they're understand that. Exactly. No, the Daily Beast has a story for you, Tristan. Prosecutors have discovered a tranche of evidence in the basement of a co-conspirator in the Trump Organization tax fraud case. A defense lawyer uh, for indicted CFO Alan Weisselberg revealed in court on Monday. And here's a quote here. He said, we have strong reason to believe there could be other indictments. From your point of view, does it look like there might be more indictments stemming from this Weisselberg case? Oh, yeah, for sure. Again, that was just the tip of a much larger iceberg. Weisselberg is going to get indicted more. It's not just indictments against other people. It's more indictments. It's what's called a superseding indictment. You do another indictment on top of the old one and you charge him with a whole bunch more stuff. Weisselberg is going to get charged with more stuff. So is the Trump organization. And then there's going to be other additional defendants. That's all just a matter of time. And, you know, David, I've been of the unpopular opinion that I, I, I do not believe Donald Trump would run for president again, unless he can be guaranteed that he'd win. Right. If the Republicans fix all of the mechanisms from local all the way up to the federal system to make it so that he cannot lose. He doesn't want to be a loser again. 
right? But my question is, let's say that for people who do think he's going to run, do you think, based on having covered him a long time, is would he run for president again with all of this hanging on him, the indictments of his businesses, potential legal trouble out of Georgia for his own interference in the election, with all the legal issues he has, is he more likely to try to run for president to indemnify himself using the presidency or to really focus on his, his, his money problems? Well, I, I will not be the least bit surprised if Donald runs again, and he may even get the Republicans to nominate him again because they blew their opportunity on January 6th to separate themselves from him. But between now and the 2024 election, he's going to be indicted probably more than once. New York State's almost certainly going to bring a racketeering charge, an Article 460 case against him under New York state law. And he's going to have lots of other problems. But in Donald's mind, he's done nothing wrong. Remember, he, he once was asked, you know, well, since you say you're such a devout Christian and reads the Bible more than anyone else, when did you last ask God for forgiveness? And Donald said, ask God for forgiveness? I've never done yeah. anything that would require asking for forgiveness. He lives in this world of invented reality. He's deeply <laughs> mentally ill and delusional. And we're seeing his delusions play out. He thinks uh, two Corinthians is, is the thing. He wasn't going to run from Rikers. <laughs> it, it, we'll see. Maybe. Maybe he could run from Rikers. His, his people probably love that. Tristan Snell and David K. Johnston, thank you both very much. All right, still ahead. Florida's Thanks. new Surgeon General is openly hostile to the vaccine and to mask mandates, which makes him the obvious choice in a state led by Governor Ron DeSantis. The readout continues after this. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has made it clear just how uninvested he is in ending the pandemic in his state, appointing a new top health, a top health official whose ideas are right out of the DeSantis playbook titled How to Not Stop COVID. DeSantis named Dr. Joseph Latipo, Florida's new Surgeon General. And the doctor said, quote, Florida will completely reject fear when it comes to COVID policies. Dr. Latipo, who, like old Killer Ron, opposes mask and vaccine mandates, says there's too much emphasis on vaccination. Quote, it's been treated almost like a religion, and that's just senseless, he said. The Sunshine State's new top doctor already issued a rule ending the state's required school quarantine after COVID exposure, saying it's up to parents to decide. In a series of op-eds, Dr. Latipo argued against vaccine mandates, questioned the vaccine in general, and called society's response an overreaction. It's no surprise Ron found a doctor who'll tell him exactly what he wants to hear, since this particular doctor has been affiliated with a group of DeSantis BFFs that the most infamous Florida retiree was also infatuated with. America's frontline doctors held, uh, who held an event last summer touting the former president's bogus miracle cure hydroxychloroquine, he and his failed son Don Jr. sent it viral. The video was scrubbed from social media sites for misinformation, and we're only showing part of it because Florida's new Surgeon General was a speaker. 
The perspective most people have been hearing is that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work, right? I believe that perspective too, until I started talking to doctors who had looked more closely, some of the physicians behind me here, who had looked more closely at the data and at the studies. If you'd forgotten why that little presser was so famous or really infamous, aside from the misinformation, one of those doctors behind him, Dr. Stella Emanuel, has made claims that alien DNA is being used in medical treatment and certain gynecologic issues stem from uh, people being exposed to demon sperm while having relations with the beasties during their dreams. Really? Joining me now, Dr. Uche Blackstock, physician and CEO of Advancing Health Equity. And Fernand Amandi, you can't make it up, Democratic pollster and executive vice president of Ben Dixon and Amandi International in La Florida. Uh, Uche Blackstock, Dr. Blackstock, you know this Dr. Latipo. I don't know if he's a clinician who actually treats patients. Uh, he is a, a researcher at UCLA specializing in heart disease, not in infectious diseases. Um... Your thoughts on him and his qualifications and the things that he says and believes? Well, well, Joy, I, I will say that when I saw the article um, listing him as the new Surgeon General for Florida, I was just absolutely shocked. And after I was shocked, I was incredibly upset. I mean, I, I've known him since medical school. Um, he is, as you can see in that video, he's, he's, he is a, he's a nice guy. He's actually quite, quite smart. Um, and he has the educational pedigree. However, he is delivering misinformation the same way other folks are. But the danger is that now he is in a government position and he's in a position to actually recommend policies and to help enforce policies. And we knew that Governor DeSantis would choose someone like him. And I think he's the perfect person for, for Governor DeSantis because he's Harvard educated. People can say, look at, oh, look at his pedigree. Um, and he's a black man. And he's I giving me that, Harvard you know, shame, by the way. Yeah, he's giving me Harvard shame because. Yeah, but here's I, the thing. Go on. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is that the, you said mentioned him being a black man. That actually is what frightens me all the more because, you know, Florida already has some discrepancy problems when it comes to African-Americans getting vaccinated and also dying from COVID. Um, you know, you already right. have in the case, you know, in the reelect for um, the, the, the Florida, the, 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 I'm sorry, one of the Florida special elections that's coming up right now, that's coming up, is going to actually have vaccinations at it because they're trying to encourage African-Americans to get vaccinated because black folks right. are actually dying disproportionately from COVID in Florida. So to me, having a black man, a black doctor be the face mm -hmm. of anti-vax and anti-mask is actually more dangerous. Right. So sorry, your thoughts. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially in rural Florida, we have huge discrepancies in terms of who is receiving vaccines. And we know that not enough Black Floridians are getting vaccinated. And so now we have a Black physician um, as Surgeon General giving out misinformation, discouraging vaccinations. And so, um, which is even more dangerous and, and incredibly more harmful to our community. And the fact is, is that you know, Dr. Latipo actually believes in this idea that we should just um, abandon all mitigation measures and let the virus spread. And when that when that happens, who is the most affected by that? Those are the most the most vulnerable and the most marginalized. It's people that look yep. like you and me.
Absolutely. And, you know, Fernand, we just put up the numbers there. I mean, only 32, 35, 33 percent of, of black Floridians are vaccinated. Forty nine percent of white residents uh, over 12 are vaccinated. So it's going to hurt. You know, Black residents are already hurting more. I want to just ask you about this. this. This American Frontline Doctors. This is a group. This is what Time magazine wrote about. The American Frontline Doctors have been a leading promoter of ivermectin, a medication typically used to treat parasitic worms in livestock since its founding last year. Um, by a Los Angeles physician who was arrested during the January 6th attack on the Capitol. This woman, Dr. Simone Gold, America's frontline doctors, has nurtured medical conspiracies in, in right-wing circles. So they're pitching the, 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 you know, and they're all, I mean, I worry about this from a political point of view, and I wonder what you think as well. I mean, there's certainly a reason for worry, but, you know, one thing I want to make sure that everybody understands Governor Ron DeSantis is vaccinated, right? Everyone on his staff is vaccinated. I'd like to know if this new Surgeon General of Florida is vaccinated. And I think it speaks to the fact that, A, the con is still very much on in Florida. But more importantly, Joy, I think this almost goes a little bit even beyond the trolling that they're doing here and maybe even more than the MAGA death cult stuff that we can laugh about here with the demon seed and the intervective. Understand also as well, one of Ron DeSantis' largest donors is yep. pushing a for-profit alternative to the vaccine. So there's that performative element going on here. I think another thing is happening now, and you have to take into consideration the calendar. This is really now a pandemic of the unvaccinated, right? You mentioned some of them over-indexed with African-Americans in Florida, and that's sad. But remember also, this is sort of an announcement that is kind of like a MAGA bat signal. You also have Ron DeSantis saying for people, whether he's going to be on the ballot a year and a half from now in the election in Florida or or three years from now when he runs for president, hey, Florida is where you want to come. Florida is a place that you want to, in essence, recolonate. So, yes, there's some politics going on here. There's also some political calculation. Don't forget the calendar as well. With the announcement that children's vaccines will now be available in October, I think DeSantis is betting the Delta variant is behind him. He can kind of loosen the reins, play politics here a little bit. And that's what you see with this very cynical choice of this very cynical Surgeon General, who I, again, I think he's probably as vaccinated as Ron DeSantis is and is still putting out this junk science as fact. Fernand, to stay with you just for a moment, because you mentioned and I've been we've been looking a lot into this story as well. Does it feel like Ron DeSantis' strategy? I mean, the fact that he's going to say that uh, that that parents can make the decision to send their children to school, even if they've been exposed to covid, meaning they could get a lot of other children sick. And I know you as a parent, that's got to be alarming and send up alarms. But he does seem to be pushing and hiring this guy feels like he's pushing maximum infection and then pushing people to get this treatment that happens to be what his largest donor makes money from. That is very suspicious to me. I don't know if it is to you. Well, I mean, always with this MAGA criminal syndicate, you got to follow the money and the money trail, I think, is crystal clear. Joy, there's another element, though. People say, why on earth would Ron DeSantis be engaging in this desperately bad politics? I mean, he's obviously taken a little bit of a hit in the polls, even in Florida. And again, the other element here is I think he's playing for time. He hasn't really been held accountable for the surge. Remember, Florida now is the number one state in the United States with uh, with deaths from COVID. More Floridians have died from COVID 
than all Americans did during the Vietnam War. I mean, think about that for a second. And yet DeSantis hasn't really been held accountable in the same way that Trump really hasn't been held accountable nor the Republican Party for the events of January 6th. So there is a sense of impunity here as well and pushing all of their chips in the table and just playing these base politics because right now they're not being held to account. Let's be honest. Yeah, and, but, and people are dying as a result. It's a hell of a game to play with people's lives. It's terrifying. Uh, Dr. Uche Blackstock, Fernando Mondi, thank you both very much. All right, tonight's absolute worst is still ahead as a foreign leader brings his COVID-loving ways to the Big Apple. But first, it's looking like bipartisan talks on a police reform bill have completely collapsed with no Plan C waiting in the wings. More after this. Stay with us. It took convicted murderer Derek Chauvin nine minutes and 29 seconds to press his knee into George Floyd's neck. The video of that horrific moment sparked a racial reckoning. But even that wasn't enough to motivate Senate Republicans. Today, Democratic Senator Cory Booker called his Republican counterpart, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and told him that Democrats were done with negotiating on the police reform bill. Scott refused to accept the Democrats' final offer on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Here's Senator Booker earlier today. It was clear that we were not uh, making the progress that we needed to make to give America what I think the largest civil rights protests we've had in our country's history uh, demands for substantive, meaningful reform. There were still things I was hoping to do, but when I couldn't get to a point where I could meet with families and tell them that we were going to address the specific issues that were putting, that put your family member in harm's way, it, it just, this is not, this, this pathway now seems to be closed. Democrats have been negotiating with Senator Scott in good faith for months. The key sticking point was qualified immunity, which shields police officers from civil liability for professional misconduct. The most recent version of the bill was a slimmed down version that did not include qualified immunity reform. The criminalization of excessive use of force and no knock warrants. Lawyers for the Floyd family called the decision extremely disappointing and urged Democrats to bring the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act to the floor for a vote so Americans can see who is looking out for their community's best interests. It's been more than a year since Floyd's murder changed the dynamic around conversations about policing in America. Today, that conversation came to a sad and uneventful end, at least for now. For more, I'm joined by the Reverend Al Sharpton, host of MSNBC's Politics Nation and president of the National Action Network. And Rev, you know, Senator Tim Scott is blaming Democrats for this. He's blaming them for walking away and throwing around a lot of language about Democrats wanting to defund the police, which was not a part of this bill at all. But I, I wonder what you make of it as somebody who was at the table um, during a lot of this process. There are all of these different police agencies that all have to be negotiated with. Um, NBC did a piece talking about it. You've got the national police unions. You've got the National Sheriff's Associations. You've got a separate um, the chief of police organizations. And instead of all unifying around the negotiations and all deciding what they wanted to do, they all have sort of taken different tacks on what they want. I don't know if you have this perception, but it feels like Tim Scott was sort of negotiating with Lindsey Graham over whether they could get the sheriffs to go along with one thing, while Cory Booker was negotiating with the chiefs of police on another thing. It seems like this might have been doomed from the start. Many of us felt that it was doomed, but we gave them the time to deal with this. And we see the results of that particular path, which is why we called on them to call the vote. We want them to have on the record who is supporting real substantive police reform. Let, let's not forget most Americans polled 
after seeing the video of uh, Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck, nine minutes and 29 seconds, say something must be done. And the courts did what they supposed to do. They convicted Chauvin of uh, murder two, murder three, and manslaughter. The Senate is saying, let it go the way it is. The Senate Republicans, we need to have a roll call on what the Democrats say. It is unbelievable to us when you saw blacks and whites, people of all backgrounds, marching all over the world. We ended the summer last year, 200,000 people marched with Martin Luther King III and I in Washington on this bill and on police reform. And they are going to turn around and negotiate with just police unions and the national sergeants and have them veto qualified immunity. So in other words, we're going to protect you, but who's going to protect the people? That is unacceptable. And we're going to keep driving this and force this to a vote. We want to know who's on the side of protecting the American people. We're not against all police, but apparently they're against all levels of accountability. You know, I, I kind of feel like Senator Tim Scott was sort of in the Joe Manchin seat on this because he was sort of making it sound like he could deliver because what had to be delivered, since this is not going to fall under, you know, the, the reconciliation rules because of Joe Manchin, um, he would have had to deliver 10 Republicans. And he was sort of making it sound like he could, but he couldn't even get Lindsey Graham to back him up with the sheriffs and felt like he was undercut by his fellow South Carolina senator. If he couldn't get Lindsey Graham to go along with the ideas, I wonder if he was the right guy to be negotiating with. And do you think we need to also start having that reconciliation conversation about police reform that we're having about voting rights? I think we must have that conversation about reconciliation and reconciliation and carve outs uh, really depend on how it deals with budgets. Well, policemen deal with budgets. We're paying billions of dollars a year for law enforcement, and we have no accountability. We cannot redress any of what they're doing that affects the budgets. Uh, And it's not about defunding the police. It's about funding police abuse and saying they're not going to be accountable. No one, I believe, can say with a straight face that what they saw happen with Chauvin was right. But it happened with Eric Garner in New York. Same thing, a chokehold. One was a knee, the other was a man's armpit, but the results were the same and countless other acts. So it's time for us to know who is in the Senate and be able to hold them accountable at the polls, which is why the voting rights movement that we're engaged in is so important. But clearly today we lost a round, but the fight is far from over. Do you know what the family's um, sort of state of mind is? Are they ready to start a whole nother round of this? I believe that from my talking to family members, uh, they are absolutely committed to it. And uh, as Philonis Floyd said from the beginning, that there must be qualified immunity unless yeah. policemen know that they are at risk, just as citizens were at risk. They lost their brother, their uncle, their father. And you're going to tell me a policeman has no risk to do whatever they want, which has now been convicted in a state of law. Yeah, indeed. Reverend Al Sharpton, uh, always appreciate you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here this evening. Um, Thank you. All right. Tonight's absolute worst is next. But first, a quick update on the Haitian refugees seeking asylum at our southern border. The White House confirmed today that the border agents seen herding migrants like cattle have been placed on administrative leave while the incident is being investigated. 
We're also learning that while many of those migrants are being sent back to Haiti, thousands more are being allowed to seek asylum here in the U.S. We're going to have much more on this important story tomorrow night. Do not miss it. We'll be right back. Remember Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro? We've mentioned him on the show before. The far-right populist who touts unproven COVID treatments, who says COVID is just like a little flu. And oh yeah, he's a climate denier who has permitted the widespread burning of the Amazon rainforest. The Trump of the tropics, indeed. Needless to say, he is not vaccinated. He says he doesn't need it because he recovered from a mild case of COVID last year, which for the record is a false claim along with his warning that the vaccine can turn you into a crocodile. That's right, a crocodile. Google it. This week, he, we saw proof that New York's ban on unvaccinated indoor diners also applies to heads of state. Without the jab, Bolsonaro was forced to eat pizza while standing on a sidewalk. Talk about your real-life pizza rat. Because Bolsonaro, while in New York for the U.N. General Assembly, defied the rule that those entering the U.N. be fully vaccinated under an honor system. Oh, it doesn't stop there. Far from it. On Tuesday, Brazil's health minister became the second member of Brazil's delegation to test positive for COVID. This was hours after escorting Bolsonaro to the General Assembly, where, as you can see, the Brazilian president spoke unmasked. Bolsonaro also met with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who urged the vaccine denier to, you know, just get the damn vaccine. The two shook hands because apparently we're still we're still doing that before Johnson left to meet President Biden at the White House. Now, here's the thing. Many of us, we take seriously the issue of people like you, Bolsonaro, potentially risking the lives of world leaders and their staffers, many of whom attended that very UN meeting to help eradicate COVID, while you spread misinformation on the world stage. It isn't just COVID, it's the misinformation that kills. Brazil has the second highest COVID death toll in the world, behind only, you know, the United States. Because we too, are grappling with a major political party peddling horse paste and death. Horse paste. Crocodiles. What the heck is going on here? This is why bad COVID leadership fueled by misinformation remains the absolute worst. Bolsonaro is back home in COVID isolation. Hope you enjoyed your sidewalk pizza, dude. Now, please stay home and don't come back soon. And that's tonight's readout. Be sure to check out the readout blog for Jahan's absolute dishonorable mentions, the absolute worst dishonorable mentions, and his reasons why you should delete your Facebook account now. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.